This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Round, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning for what is our 84th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And it does not let up. Uh, We are seeing a rise in cases here in Connecticut. Our positivity rate last week, we're at 8.8 percent. We're now at over 11 percent. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that, this rise, and what we need to do about it. Uh, Last week, our conversation was interrupted uh, because of a bad connection with uh, Dr. Ketan Bulsara, who is the chairman of neurosurgery at UConn. So I wanted to add this. um, If you have uh, a brain tumor or any other neurosurgical issue, Um, that needs to be addressed, I wanted to give that phone number, and that is 860-679-6551, and that connects you with the University of Connecticut Brain and Spine Institute. Uh, So let's get right into the COVID positivity issue. I'm going to do things a little bit out of water here, but as I said, we're over 11% now. Hospitalizations are going up. Deaths are going up, and the possibility of getting reinfected despite having had COVID is clearly going up with this new variant. So taking a step backward, when we deal with a new variant, right, it is the virus evolving. It mutates to become more resistant to whatever it is we throw at it. And in this case, what it's doing is spreading faster and avoiding the antibodies that you get when you have had a previous form of COVID. Here in Connecticut, we look at three metrics in terms of deciding if an area is low, medium, or high level of disease. So the three metrics are hospital admissions per 100,000 population over the past seven days. We look at the percentage of staffed inpatient beds that are occupied, and we look at the total COVID-19 cases per 100,000 population over the past seven days. So basically, we're looking at people who go into the hospital, right? And if they have to stay in the hospital and people who have contracted the disease. Now, we know, so that 11% is the last category, the cases per 100,000 population in the past seven days. It's a low number. It's a conservative number because it only counts people who have had a PCR test, not if you've done a rapid test at home. So when we look at the state of Connecticut now, the medium levels are in New London County, Fairfield County, Litchfield, Tolland, and Wyndham. 
Counties that are now in the high category are Hartford, Middlesex, and New Haven. And the recommendation is to begin wearing a mask when you're indoors. Make sure you're vaccinated and get tested. So what is hard to understand is we seem to be moving in the opposite direction. I almost feel like we're lemmings going off a cliff in the sense that we needed to reopen. We need to get away from masks. You know, masks aren't such a bad thing if they keep you alive. Uh, At least the mayor of New York has said, we may be going back to mandating masks and mandating that everybody get boosted. Boy, he stuck his neck out politically there, right? Because no politician wants to do that, especially here in Connecticut. This is an election year. Nobody wants to say, listen, we're going back to masks. But haven't we evolved as human beings enough to know that we need to change with a situation? You can't keep doing the same thing all the time. So you have to get back to what's working. We're going to keep an eye on this um, because there are so many issues related to it. Um, Apropos to that, I had to make a trip to North Carolina this weekend, uh, this week, uh, for a course that was being taught in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, at Wake Forest University. Uh, It was interesting from the standpoint that looking at folks on the airplane. Uh, I have to say, the the flights leaving from Connecticut seem to have the highest number of people wearing a mask. So I was encouraged by that. But it's interesting also that when you're doing things, when you're in North Carolina, for example, you rarely see a mask. At the course I was attending, everybody wore a mask. Um, It was in a university, and everybody there was a physician. So it was interesting that everyone wore masks. So there are ways to get back to things and be safe. For example, when we had lunch, uh, no one really sat closely together. You picked up your lunch, and uh, many of us went outside and sat with people who we knew in smaller groups. Uh, I happen to have uh, the benefit of traveling with my daughter, Catherine, who uh, is a neurologist and works with me at the University of Connecticut to attend the course. So there are ways of being safe and keeping yourself safe. Uh, For example, uh, eating in a restaurant. We went to get something to eat in a Panera. Uh, We were fully ready to take ours as takeout, but I noticed there was a small room off the side. Nobody's in there. I said, hey, let's go here. So there are ways of doing that. I'm nervous about super spreader events, right? We saw this uh, with the so-called gridiron dinner in Washington, um, the uh, White House uh, press meeting, um, press dinner. We're seeing these cases. So, I mean, how much do we have to understand? And people are getting married and having big affairs at a record rate. So I think that that's all contributing to this. And it's important for us to realize that if we're going to try and stay healthy, because this is expensive, not just expensive in terms of testing and providing medications and hospitalizations. When you get COVID, you can't go to work, right? That's lost productivity in this country. 
So we have to be mindful of it, and we're going to keep an eye on that, as we have uh, for the past 84 shows. This day in medicine, May 7, 1841, Dr. Gustave Le Bon uh, was born. He's a French physician and founder of social psychology. And what was interesting uh, about uh, Dr. Le Bon is he produced a seminal study on mob psychology. And he wrote that one doesn't behave according to one's intelligence, but according to one's character. And I think that's important when dealing with mobs and riots, as we all know in this country. We're seeing people now who are um, going to prison for what they did. Everybody says, well, that's not part of their character or their intelligence. But they, it had to be part of their character if that's what drove them to do this. I don't think they were thinking. It doesn't take a, a genius to know that this isn't the right thing to do. But in either case, it's interesting that really back in 1841, uh, there was this realization of a problem with mob psychology. Uh, something that's come up, I wanted to mention, uh, and there was an article recently in the paper, is about older adults and driving. And they seem to think everything has to do with vision and age. And what they don't understand is that older folks, like myself, are individuals. And we all have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, whether it So it can't be just based on a vision test. And that's what the, the article keeps talking about. Well, you have to take a vision test here, there, or whatever. One thing that's changed is automobiles have become much more automated, right, with cameras and things like that to promote more safety and hopefully keep people independent longer and retaining the privilege to drive longer. But those same devices require... A lot of cognitive insight. You have to think quickly. There are a lot of things changing. So I maintain that this is not an age-related question of driving. It is more of a cognitive issue in terms of the ability to pay attention, and especially at night because you lose a lot of the visual cues that we use to guide ourselves and operate a vehicle. So I would certainly like to see things change in terms of who should be on the road and who shouldn't. And I don't think it needs to be. There are some young people who really just don't have good judgment. And we need to really find who those folks are to keep the road safe when we see a lot of these accidents. With that, we're going to take a short break. Now we're going to back. I want to spend some time talking about the LumiPulse device. Uh, I did an interview this week on Headline News with Robin Mead in Morning Express where they asked my opinion regarding this new device in the early detection of Alzheimer's disease. If you want to reach me with any questions, it's info at alessimd.com. Love getting all your questions. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Back on Healthy Rounds, I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And as I said right before the break, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the headlines we've been hearing all week, and particularly with respect to a device called the 
LumiPulse uh, device. So it's being touted as a test to tell you if you have Alzheimer's disease. Let me start out by just explaining that that's not the case. There is not a test, a definitive test that's going to tell you you have Alzheimer's disease or you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. So I think the press are trying to promote this as something like a nasal swab or a finger stick. Uh, and that's not the case at all. Um, this is a test. It's a, based, uh, it's a test based on doing a spinal tap. So they collect spinal fluid and look at the fluid. So before we get into that, let me back up a little bit and let's talk a little bit about Alzheimer's disease in general. There are 6.2 million Americans over the age of 65 who suffer from Alzheimer's disease. What's interesting is that we, that number could rise to as much as 13.8 million. So it could double by 2060 based on baby boomers and others becoming older, the way our population changes. So when we look at Alzheimer's disease, when we look at the brain in general, we have things called amyloid plaques and tau, plaque, tau tangles. So amyloid plaques, tau tangles. Amyloid is a protein, and this is normally found in the brain. The, the plaques and tangles are normally found in a normal brain. In Alzheimer's disease, what happens is these plaques and tangles begin to multiply and actually injure the brain. So the amyloid plaques are made up of a protein called beta amyloid, and it's the key protein. So what this new LumiPulse test is doing is, as I said, collecting spinal fluid and measuring the ratio of two different types of beta amyloid. And in doing so, making a determination of a part of the puzzle for Alzheimer's disease. It's really only taking the place of a previous test called a PET scan, positron emission tomography. Many people were familiar with that term, especially in the area of cancer research, because with a PET scan, you're using a radioactive tracer, a radio tracer, and that looks at the metabolic activity of the brain. What it allows us to do is visualize these plaques. So you can look at the brain and see the number of plaques. The problem with the PET scan is it's very cumbersome expensive and not easily available. So the feeling is with the LumiPulse, it will become more available. But again, as I said, it's a spinal tap. So it's not a very comfortable test. Although spinal taps have changed a great deal. Uh, a lot of them are done now under radiographic guidance through radiology and the x-ray suite. And they could use a much smaller needle to collect the spinal fluid. So what does all this mean? So is this a good thing, bad thing? It's a good thing because it's another piece to the puzzle in terms of determining early on if someone in a younger age, and this test is approved for people over the age of 55, so in younger adults to find out if 
they're having Alzheimer's disease. How does that help us? We don't have a cure, but it allows people to make changes in their lives that are necessary in order to prepare. It also allows us to start working more with drug trials, and that's the key. Can we find a medication or some way of looking at treating Alzheimer's disease? And there are many of those ongoing. Some of them are immunologic, a way of designing uh, a medication that would attack the plaques and tangles from the standpoint of reducing that inflammatory damage. So again, um, very important piece of information uh, for us, and we'll keep an eye on the Lumi Pulse as we do um, spend a fair amount of time discussing uh, Alzheimer's disease. One of the questions uh, Robin Mead had for me was, you know, what are the other ways and what are the big things we do? And, uh, you know, the biggest factors in trying to assess somebody for Alzheimer's disease uh, is not only just an MRI, um, but also a very, th you start with a very thorough neurologic exam. And looking at physical pres their physical findings in addition to their mental status. So cognitive questions. And if there are some openings in those cognitive issues, you would refer to neuropsychometric testing. Now, neuropsychometric testing is something we use all the time with concussion and other things um, in terms of being able to learn new information, retain information. And that's a big issue with Alzheimer's disease. What we, we consider Alzheimer's disease and dementia in general is the inability to learn new information. So that in addition to imaging, and, and that's one of the things people always say, well, what could I do to avoid Alzheimer's disease or if I think I'm becoming demented? So a lot of people, you know, resort to uh, crossword puzzles. Somebody must have written a paper about crossword puzzles. Now, crossword puzzles are a great thing to do, but if that's all you're doing, uh, you pretty much become good at crossword puzzles. So uh, many uh, neuropsychologists believe that even as we get older, the ability to learn new information, such as uh, learning a new language or learning some new skill, especially if you can incorporate a motor skill with a cognitive skill. That's why we talk a lot about dancing lessons, um, especially people with Parkinson's disease, because that works on the motor aspect of learning. Uh, playing a musical instrument and learning a new song, a new piece, again, you're incorporating that knowledge of seeing the notes, memorizing the notes, and the motor function. Even something like learning how to type, uh, something I certainly can become better at uh, in my generation. But it again, learning that skill and incorporating a motor function. And I think that's something we all uh, would like to work on and uh, are wary of. With that, we're going to take a short break. We're going to be back with my guest. I didn't even mention my guest. My guest today is Dr. Yu Sung Sang. Dr. Sang is a gastroenterologist. And the reason uh, we invited him is because there was a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine 
that there is a rise in colorectal cancer in the United States in people under the age of 50. And I just found this shocking. Whereas in older adults, the numbers are going down for colorectal cancer. And we're always hearing things, colonoscopy, uh, cologuard, or any of these other things um, to help screen for colorectal cancer. So uh, after a short break, he is going to be our guest and give us the information on when we should be screened and why is this going up. As always, any questions for me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. All right, we're back on Healthy Rounds, and hopefully we have uh, better connections. Um, as I mentioned, my guest today is Dr. Yu Sung Sang, a gastroenterologist and a good friend and colleague and uh, over many years, and he has been uh, a source of great information for me. Yu Sung, are you there? Hey, Tony, how are you? All right. This article in the New England Journal of Medicine got my attention because I always think colorectal cancer, where we're making strides, numbers are going down. And here it tells us that adults over the uh, younger than 50 years old, we're looking at an increase uh, in the frequency and detection of colorectal cancer. Why is that? Well, it is true that uh, from your previous statement that we are seeing decreases over the age of 50. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I submit that to, you know, great coverage for colon cancer screening, different types of colon cancer screening modalities. Um, you know, we have better technology now, better therapies. So you're seeing both, you know, decreases in rates because, you know, by seeing these patients earlier, we're taking out polyps, and therefore those patients are never ever going to develop colon cancer as long as they keep following up with us. And then you have better treatments in terms of survival and surgery uh, and chemotherapy. The problem is that those younger than 50, we never really thought about it because everyone said, well, you know, we just start at 50. So why would I do anything earlier than that? And as a result, we are starting to see younger cases because we never really put any mind into that. So I guess this comes down to screening. I mean, we're dealing now with the third most common uh, cancer worldwide and and really second in cancer-related deaths. But one of the things that one of my pet peeves on this show is this U.S. Preventive Services Task Force because they come out with these recommendations that don't necessarily apply to everybody. And they revised the colon the colonoscopy screening several years ago. And so what is the age when we start to recommend people? When should somebody go get a colonoscopy? So I think now in, you know, 2022, if you're average risk, meaning that you have no family history and you have no symptoms, it actually is 45. Uh, We're actually quite lucky in the state of Connecticut. Every insurance carrier that I can think of right now will cover screening colonoscopy at the age of 45. And that's if you don't have a previous history. Correct. I mean, if for some reason you've had, you know, bleeding, of course, that changes things. If you and you're younger than 45, or you have a family history, you're very strong. You have a couple of first-degree relatives who had colon cancer in their 50s. Yeah, that changes things. That shifts the number down. So you want to get screened a little earlier, and you know, you can talk to your primary care provider 
or, or, or gastroenterologists about that. But so, in general, average risk patients, 45 and above. So let's take another step backward and look at this. How, why are we seeing, first of all, so much colorectal cancer only in high-income countries? And what are the factors here? Diet? Uh, what what, yeah. what are the ways to get that yeah. down and prevent this? Yeah. Uh, so it's, that's a good question. And I think if you kind of look at it, it probably all boils down to diet and obesity. It really is uh, uh, directly correlated with risks. And we, we know that obesity increases your risk for a variety of things, you know, high blood pressure, cholesterol, you know, coronary artery disease, and cancer. And, and it doesn't have to be just colorectal cancer be any types of cancer, but in particular can increase your risk of colorectal cancer. And they talk about this Western diet, you know, Western diet is obviously, you know, a lot more, you know, red meat based. So, you know, high fat content. So I think that unfortunately here in the U.S., we have both an increase in obesity and we typically have a Western diet. When when we look at that, and I guess, uh, you know, that that's something interesting because I never really thought of obesity playing a role in colorectal cancer. But what about people with other conditions like uh, Crohn's disease uh, or inflammatory bowel disease? Are they more prone to uh, developing colorectal cancer? Oh, uh, most definitely, uh, in particular ulcerative colitis. Uh, Crohn's disease, if uh, they don't have any involvement in the colon, probably negligible risk. But if they have a significant amount of their colon affected by Crohn's disease, yeah. Any inflammatory condition that irritates the colon will increase your risk for dysplasia, which is the precursor to colon cancer. So uh, definitely inflammatory bowel disease patients, uh, again, they're not average risk. If you've had the disease for many years, your gastroenterologist will tell you when you should start being screened for colon cancer. All right, let's talk about the dreaded colonoscopy. Uh, I mean, people tend to not want to do that test um, because of the thought of it, uh, uncomfortable, the prep. But it's evolved to some degree uh, in terms of a colonoscopy. Can you walk us through, uh, if someone's listening and they're supposed to go for a colonoscopy, can you walk us through the procedure, the prep, and, and how things work? Sure. Uh, we have made great strides. The preps are uh, different varieties now. Uh, uh, Old-fashioned large volume preps are, are a thing of the past. You actually can get small volume preps now. Uh, there are forms of liquids, powder, or even pills now. So uh, you can do a variety of preps that are, are quite doable. Um, and that's typically done the day before the procedure, modification of your diet the day before the procedure. Uh, and once you're cleaned out, uh, and I call it looking like Mountain Dew, which really should come out looking like yellow, green, clear, that's when you know you're totally cleaned out so that the endoscopist can have and perform a what we call a high-quality colonoscopy, get a really good look at your colon. You'll show up at the facility, and the uh, staff will get you ready, change, place an intravenous into you, bring you to the procedure room. The anesthesiologist will hook up your whole bunch of monitors, they give you sedation, uh, monitor you carefully, and then we perform a procedure with a flexible endoscope uh, looking inside the colon for, for polyps, hopefully at the most, and if we see polyps, we do remove them. How long does it take? Typical colonoscopy takes anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. Um, 
So, and, and I, I think I want to emphasize to people, it's important to follow the directions on the prep. I, I think if there's any pet peeve of gastroenterologists, I mean, you're nice not to mention it, but it's when people don't follow the directions in doing the prep because, as you said, it's based on what you can visualize. And obviously, if the colon is not clear, you can't visualize everything, so you're defeating the purpose of it. Um, I Correct. Guess, I mean, again... Yeah, a high-quality colonoscopy requires you to be totally clean so you can see polyps. Because if you are average risk and you come in the age of 45 and you have a polyp that is potentially obscured by some stool or debris, you know, you may not be told to come back in 10 years. And in 10 years' time, you could actually develop an occult colon cancer in that 10 years. Yeah, I, uh, you know, and I want people to understand. First of all, the colonoscopies are readily available. Uh, Dr. Seng is with uh, Connecticut GI. There are centers. I don't even know how many centers you have now, but I know they're everywhere. Um, in conjunction with Hartford Healthcare, um, how many centers do you have now in the state of Connecticut where you're doing procedures? Gosh, we have probably nine now, and we're in every county of the state of Connecticut now. Oh. Uh, Getting back to the diagnostic part of this, uh, we all see these commercials for Cologuard, right? So right away you think, whoa, I could avoid a colonoscopy um, by using this uh, other test that you send off and they get back and tell you if you have, uh, col you have a problem with your colon or need a colonoscopy. Can you talk a little bit about this Cologuard product? Sure. Uh, the Cologuard is a stool-based test. Uh, you get a kit mailed to you, and you follow the directions, and you uh, return back to the company uh, via the mail, a sample of your stool, and they analyze it. And basically, they're looking for a combination of things, uh, DNA cells from colon cancer and potentially precancerous polyps called adenomas, uh, and also a component of the test is a, a guaiac, which is the presence of occult blood. Um, yeah, I, you know, obviously asking a gastroenterologist, you know, would you recommend a cologuard or a colonoscopy? Obviously, a gastroenterologist is going to say colonoscopy for a variety of reasons, since, you know, we can intervene and do something, and if we see a polyp, we can remove it. There are some advantages and disadvantages of cologuard. Uh, cologuard done in the comfort of your home. You don't have to leave. You just mail it back. Disadvantage, I think, main thing is that it's not 100% sensitive, not 100% specific. Uh, you have false positives, false negatives, and obviously, if you have a positive result, you will have to follow up with a colonoscopy. Saying, uh, let's move on. If we, so say we find a cancerous lesion, um, what what are the next steps in terms of the workup, imaging? who gets surgery. Can you talk us, walk us through that? Sure. Uh, typically, they encounter a lesion that is cancerous and uh, cannot be removed endoscopically. And, and some of my colleagues uh, can perform advanced endoscopy to remove uh, potentially cancerous lesions. But in general, if you run into a colon cancer, the next step is to refer to two people. One is a colorectal surgeon, and the second is an oncologist. Because basically at that point, you're going to have to know what stage of the cancer is it. Is it still localized to the colon, in which case the surgeon could potentially resect the lesion and you are essentially cured of the colon cancer? 
Or secondly, if they discover that it actually has gone outside the lining of the colon and spread to surrounding areas like lymph nodes or organs like the liver, then you, unfortunately you will also need to see an oncologist who will need to talk to you about potential chemotherapy, chemoradiation therapy. Let me go to uh, the surgery itself. I think there's uh, a misimpression that everybody who has a colon resection needs a colostomy. Uh, and are we seeing fewer and fewer uh, colostomies these days as opposed to the past? Oh, well, much fewer. I mean, gosh, the days of having permanent colostomies are, are long gone. Uh, you can almost ne never need to have a permanent colostomy. You know, very rarely in the setting of an extremely low-lying rectal cancer, if it's right at the opening, Obviously, if you kind of remove that area, it's actually very difficult to attach any part of the bowel to that area. So I think it's really sometimes really low-lying rectal cancer is the only area that I can think of where sometimes you may unfortunately end up with a permanent colostomy. Everything else many times can be done laparoscopically in one session, and you're hooked up right away without even the need for a temporary colostomy. Wow. Wow. I, I think I, I didn't know that either. Um, well, let's go on to treatment. Um, you talked a little bit about seeing an oncologist. Is it purely chemotherapy? Is it chemotherapy with radiation um, uh, typically in, in treatment? Most of the times the uh, radiation-based uh, therapies uh, involve the rectal cancers just because of the unusual nature of that area. Uh, typically, cancers higher above the rectum can be treated with combination of surgery, uh, chemotherapy. Uh, there are different forms of chemotherapy nowadays. Uh, some are not always intravenous. Some are even pill forms now or combination of pill and intravenous. Well, uh, boy, it certainly has evolved. Uh, what, in, in wrapping up, uh, what would be your final uh, advice to our listeners? I think it's just to be aware, uh, stay healthy, eat healthy, exercise, try to maintain a good body weight, talk to your primary care doctor, ask him or her, hey, when should I get my first form of colon cancer screening? And you can decide amongst him or her whether Cologuard or colonoscopy is the best option. Uh, and you'll, they'll steer you in the right direction. Does imaging play a role in screening? I remember there, there was a period of time where they were doing virtual colon, we were doing CT scans for colon screening. Did that ever go anywhere? No, it really hasn't uh, picked up. Uh, it really not think at favorable reviews from, you know, Medicare even. So I think that that's a well, thing of the past. <laughs> well, I guess Medicare truly determines what's going to work and what's not. Um, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Yu Sung Sang. If you want to reach Dr. Sang, the phone number is 860-859-9061. He is part of Connecticut GI. Yu Sung, thanks for taking time and, and sharing your knowledge with us today. My pleasure, Tony. Take care. Be safe. All right. We're going to take a short break. Then I'm going to come back and answer some of the questions that have been coming in. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and um, wanted to share a few minutes with you about 
uh, questions and things coming up. For example, uh, one of the questions uh, I get a lot is about long COVID, uh, for lack of a better term. And these are persistent symptoms after someone has had COVID. And one of the problems in making this diagnosis is the fact that it's a poorly defined phenotype, meaning the symptoms we're looking for that are consistent are very hard to define. Uh, so many people have a variety of issues. And we're saying, uh, they're starting to say that there are about 30% of people who have had COVID will have some longer lasting symptoms. And, and they could range from lack of taste and smell uh, to a lot of difficulty with concentration, uh, motor abilities, and things such as that. And what makes it hard is because it falls into the category of things we've seen in the past where people have felt that they had persistent symptoms after Lyme disease, uh, for example, or other inflammatory problems. So in terms of making a diagnosis, we have a center at Hartford HealthCare. Um, many of my colleagues involved in physiatry, physical medicine, have become involved in taking care of patients with, I guess for, for a better term, be persistent symptoms after COVID and trying to treat those symptoms. It doesn't mean we don't have any evidence that these are permanent, these symptoms. Um, even the lack of taste and smell, many people have gotten that back uh, months after. Uh, so we're learning a lot about this. And I think it's something on this program we're going to keep track of uh, because it's an important topic uh, for many of our listeners. As many listeners know, I spend a great deal of uh, time in Haiti. Uh, I have not over the last two years due to COVID and due to unrest. And I work with Father Rick Frechette at the St. Luke Foundation, St. Luke Hospital, and the St. Damien Hospital in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And although... Our hospital is no exception to the unrest there. It, it came home to us uh, this week. In fact, yesterday, um, when one of our pediatricians, uh, Dr. Benetti Augustin, was taken uh, as a hostage in a kidnapping. It is hard to imagine living in a place that has this much unrest, this much lawlessness. And yet these people, a, a young professional woman such as Dr. Augustine, still comes to work every day to care for the smallest citizens, these little infants. Um, just she's such an outstanding pediatrician. Um, uh, I am very sad uh, for her. Her brother is our medical director. And um, I ask all of you to say a short prayer. Uh, uh, for my friend, Dr. Augustine, and, and the other people who are living in a, a place like that um, with lawlessness. With that, in closing today, I want to wish all the mothers out there a happy Mother's Day for tomorrow. Many thanks to our studio producer, Tom Conley-Wilson's been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, if you have any questions, you could always reach me at info at alessimd.com. If you missed any part of today's program, 
You can get it at the Healthy Rounds podcast. You can download it from Odyssey or from the iTunes store. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.